are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville. For their support, we'd like to thank Four Paws Animal Clinic, providing medical, dental, surgical services, alternative therapies, and cat boarding for cherished companions. On Cyril's Avenue, Nevada City, Dr. Susan Murphy and staff are proud to support KVMR. F-O-U-R pauseac.com and Scraps Cat and Dog Bakery open 10 to 4 p.m. Monday through Saturday offering deliveries and curbside pickup at 2034 Nevada City Highway next to BNC Hardware 530-274-4493 and Sweetland Garden Mercantile in North San Juan on the Ridge offering organic compost tea and soil bloom and trim supplies also household goods 2929000 sweetlandgm.com after the NPR headlines and local weather we'll be talking with Taylor Wolf about the change in Nevada County status under under the state's COVID guidelines. Also, we'll have this week's National Native News report from NPR and a commentary from George Rebain. The first NPR headlines followed by local web. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Kentucky's governor is calling for more transparency in the wake of a grand jury's decision in the Breonna Taylor case. Taylor was killed when police executed a warrant at her apartment. One officer was charged with wanted endangerment for shooting into a neighbor's apartment. Rizalner Klibanoff with member station WFPL reports none of the three officers involved were charged with crimes directly related to her death. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir says he has requested that Attorney General Daniel Cameron post online many of the investigative files. He acknowledges that an ongoing federal investigation and felony prosecution may limit what Cameron can share, but says the public has a right to know how these decisions were reached. Those that are currently feeling frustration, feeling hurt, they deserve to know more. I trust Kentuckians. They deserve to see the facts. Bashir, a first-term Democrat, has criticized Cameron in the past for the length of the investigation into Taylor's death. For NPR News, I'm Eleanor Klibanoff in Louisville. Tough, brave, a fighter, and a winner. Just some of the words Chief Justice John Roberts used today to describe his colleague, the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ginsburg, who died last week of pancreatic cancer, was honored at a private ceremony today in the Great Hall of the Supreme Court, where the Chief Justice hailed her as a pivotal force for women's rights. It has been said that Ruth wanted to be an opera virtuoso, but became a rock star instead. But she chose the law. Subjected to discrimination in law school and the job market because she was a woman, Ruth would grow to become the leading advocate fighting such discrimination in court. Ginsburg's flag-draped coffin or casket was placed at the top of the court's front steps so the public can pay their respects to just the second woman to serve on the high court. Justice Ginsburg was 87 years old. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo took his tough message on China to the Wisconsin State Capitol building today, a key state in presidential election politics. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. 
Pompeo accuses the Chinese Communist Party of carrying out influence and espionage campaigns in the U.S., and he's putting state legislators in Wisconsin on notice. We watched the CCP campaigns targeting state-level officials, local interests. We've seen them at PTA meetings. They've been in full swing for years, and they're increasing in intensity. His State Department has revoked visas for about a thousand Chinese students, and he's putting restrictions on Chinese diplomats that mirror the ones that American diplomats face in China. Pompeo also says that the State Department is reviewing the activities of two groups, including the U.S.-China Friendship Association. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Stocks turned sharply lower again today. The Dow down 525 points. The Nasdaq fell 330 points. This is NPR. What is now tropical depression beta continues as a rainmaker dumping moisture across a swath of Louisiana, Arkansas, and Mississippi after flooding homes and roadways in Texas. Houston began drying out somewhat today after parts of the metro area got nearly 14 inches of rain over a three-day period. National Weather Service says flash flood warnings were up today for parts of Louisiana, where as much as four inches of rain has already fallen, with more expected. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. And taking a look at the weather, first here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, it looks like we'll have a low of 63 tonight, high of 79 tomorrow. It's going to be sunny all week and warming up with temperatures warming up to the mid-90s by Monday. And in Sacramento, low of 59, high of 86 tomorrow, warming to 102 by Monday and in Truckee, low of 39, high of 75, warming to the low 80s by Tuesday. I'm speaking with Taylor Wolf. She's administrative analyst for Nevada County. And uh, Taylor, we have some good news for today. Actually, the the news came out yesterday, but I thought we'd talk about it and kind of get some details out. So the good news is uh, Nevada County has moved from the red, which is substantial tier, to the orange uh, moderate tier under the state's covid guidelines. Uh, What exactly does this mean for Nevada County? Yeah, thank you, Paul, for having me on to talk a little bit about it. This is good news, so something we're excited to talk about. Um, And really, it's all due and credit to the community and the precautions people have put into action to lower our daily new cases and keep our uh, testing positivity rate low to move from this red tier to orange tier with lessened business restrictions. Ultimately, what this results in is being able to increase our capacity in some of our stores. So uh, most notably, uh, restaurants are moving from 25% uh, capacity indoors for dine-in to 50% capacity indoors for dine-in. Um, you know, offices, when we were first put into the tier system in late August, uh, really all non-essential businesses were encouraged to work remotely again under the red tier, but now under the orange tier, um, starting to look at opening offices indoors again with modifications, of course, um, masking where applicable 
and physical distancing while remote working, if it works effectively for the business, is still, of course, encouraged. Um, Movie theaters is another big one. So moving again from 25 to 50 percent capacity in movie theaters and gyms and fitness centers, 10 percent to 25 percent capacity. And this is also impacting um, our bars and breweries as well. They can now open outdoors only with modifications and without food. So um, there was some requirements beforehand where bars and breweries or would have to serve food if they were serving drinks. And then wineries can also begin opening up indoors up to 25% capacity um, or 100 people, whichever is fewer with modifications. So some good news for uh, many of our business industries locally. Well, when can the businesses uh, actually begin to uh, move into this new phase? So the state announces uh, these phases on Tuesday afternoons right around noon. So when they do that, it goes into effect immediately. So all these modifications, the increased capacity and all these businesses were able to go immediately into effect as of yesterday. And the state also is listing all this guideline guidance um, from the red tier to the orange tier. People can dig into it on their website at covid19.ca.gov. And you can actually type in your county, so for us, Nevada, and even the business sector you may specifically be interested in, and it'll tell you exactly where we lie as far as current modifications and tiers and where you should be looking for the most current guidance. So what do residents um, need to remember um, as we move into this less restrictive designation? So this, as it's really, really exciting news, we're increasing capacity in our businesses. Um, You know, things might feel a little bit more normal if you're out in the community and deciding to go out for a meal at a local restaurant and support um, one of our businesses. We also have to continue to be incredibly cautious with COVID-19 as well. And it's the same things we've been talking about for um, quite some time. Uh, as we've been living with COVID-19. So it's it's wearing a mask when you're out in public spaces. It's keeping your physical distance, refraining from those social gatherings with people outside your households, and of course, getting tested too. So, you know, really, as we move into these less restrictive tiers, we need to be more diligent than ever before, because ultimately we'll have the potential for more COVID-19 exposures if we aren't really, really diligent about those practices that we know help slow the spread when we are out in the community more exposed than we were um, at home and not going out as much. You mentioned positivity rate as one of the metrics of the state monitors. Can getting tested, can being tested regularly for COVID-19 help us keep our rates low? Yes, thank you, Paul. Um, Testing is definitely something that that we at the county and public health wants to encourage people to continue to do. Again, as we move into these less restrictive tiers, people maybe are out um, supporting local businesses, um, helping, you know, maybe just expose more to public areas. It's really a great idea every few weeks even to get tested for COVID-19, even if you're asymptomatic. So both symptomatic and asymptomatic residents are welcome to get tested um, at our local OptumServe testing sites locally to Western Nevada County. That's at the Grass Valley Veterans Hall. 
uh, we partnered with Placer County at another testing site up in Truckee and all Cali- counties throughout California have local OptumServe testing sites. So uh, there's plenty of options uh, local to everyone. Uh, but yes, uh, not only can it help keep that positivity rate low by having those asymptomatic people tested and potentially come up negative, hopefully, um, but it also allows our contact tracers to follow up with those who may test positive for COVID-19, ultimately resulting in limiting the exposure that this person might have in the community um, and potentially spreaded COVID-19 unknowingly in our community as well. Um, you know, a few months ago, uh, we were working to solve some issues statewide with testing. So the testing turnaround was quite delayed. It's now been back at three days for the last month or so. And beforehand, people were, um, I would say, kind of cautious to get tested because rumor had it, you know, the swab went way up to your nose, to your brain, so to speak, um, which was how the old test was. But now it is a swab that is just the bottom of both of your nostrils. So it's much easier, much more comfortable now to go get tested. It's very quick. And a lot of times you can get same day testing. So if you're interested in getting tested for COVID-19, you can visit LHI period care slash COVID testing. Look for a testing site nearest you. It'll ask you for some information. Uh, the test is free of cost and very easy to do and ultimately um, helps our community slow the spread of COVID-19, limit exposures, and help stay in these less restrictive tiers as well. Um, any final thoughts that you'd like to uh, share with our listeners? Yeah, finally, I'd just like to encourage everyone and let them know about public health free drive-through flu shot clinics. So uh, different than COVID-19 testing and COVID like we were just talking about, but um, also parallel as well. So, you know, we don't know what flu season will look like this year as we head into fall and winter. Um, But, you know, if we have COVID-19 and the flu at the same time, there is a potential to place a burden on our healthcare systems again. Uh, Just like we were talking about much earlier with COVID-19, it still absolutely could be a possibility, but lucky enough, we haven't been impacted um, to that extent here locally. So really, it's it's another tool people can use to help lessen the burden on our healthcare systems, um, not get the flu this year. And it's especially important, same as for COVID-19, for those with underlying health conditions that may be more susceptible to the flu, it's a great year to get the flu shot. So we have our flu shot clinic. It's free and drive through on October 6th from 12 to 4 p.m at Twin Cities Church parking lot off of Rough and Ready Highway in Grass Valley. We'll have flu shots available for both adults and children three years and older. We ask that people wear clothing that allows easy access to your upper arms, which is where you get your flu shot. And it is a drive-through event only, so we ask no walk-ups, please. Try to be in a car. Um, And then, of course, with COVID-19 this year, if you are coming to get your flu shot, we do ask that while in your car, please wear your face covering uh, for for those kids that are three and older and, of course, adults as well. Um, so that information is up on our website. Again, that'll be October 6, 12 to 4 p.m., free drive-through flu shot clinic at Twin Cities Church parking lot. I've been speaking with Taylor Wolf, Administrative Analyst for Nevada County. Taylor, thank you so much for all the information. All right. Thank you, Paul. Take care. You bet. 
Next up, this special report from NPR. What should we make of what the CDC said and then unsaid? On Friday, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention published new guidance. It said, the coronavirus is airborne. That does not refer to the little droplets that travel a few feet from an infected person. To scientists, airborne means the virus may travel considerable distances and aerosol transmission might be one of the most common ways that it spreads. The guidance was up all weekend and then removed on Monday. The agency says this was a draft posted in error. Dr. Ali Khan is here to talk with us about this. He's a former CDC official, now the dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. He's on Skype. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Thank you. And welcome back to the program. Wasn't it already widely understood that there was airborne transmission? Yes, Steve, absolutely. So there's nothing new in this change in guidance uh, that there's a minor role for airborne transmission. And we knew this from SARS coronavirus 1, and we now have additional data from this new SARS coronavirus 2. So the disease is predominantly large particle uh, aerosol. So that's why this is predominantly aerosol. So this is somebody standing in front of you who's coughing, speaking, sneezing, singing, for example, uh, is the major mode of transmission. Occasionally, we get this disease from contaminated surfaces. And then there's a minor role, again, for these small particle aerosols, which is what is referred as airborne transmission. And these are transmitted further than six feet away, potentially around a corner, especially in poorly ventilated indoor spaces. And then finally, there's a yet even more minor role, probably for transmission via feces. So nothing new here. Hmm. Well, what do you make of this uh, unremarkable guidance being published and then withdrawn? confusing. So CDC is not perfect and certainly has made some mistakes this past year. Uh, But with due respect to the agency, it's hard to imagine that this is one of them, given the scrutiny that they've had in all of their messaging. And for example, so just last week, we saw flip-flop from CDC on testing of asymptomatic persons. We saw documented proof of manipulation of CDC's official publication. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not hard to understand people questioning that these changes may be deliberate interference by the Ministry of Obfuscation and Misdirection. Which, of course, is not an official government office, but I gather you're suggesting the Trump administration is not happy with what the CDC is saying and is encouraging it to change things? Well, we've seen the deliberate undermining of public health over the course of this outbreak for political purpose. And we have seen numerous examples now of deliberate change of guidance that's not evidence-based. Can we still trust what the CDC tells us then? Unfortunately, it's becoming harder to trust what CDC tells us. Uh, And this is extremely unfortunate because trust is the most important thing we need during a pandemic as we tell people that regardless of this minor role of aerosol transmission, we have the tools available to us today to stop this outbreak in its track with test, trace, and isolate, and please do our part of wearing a mask, washing our hands, and socially uh, distancing. And this trust is going to be even more important as we tell people to roll up their sleeves and get vaccinated, uh, hopefully sometime at the end of this year and into next year. I'm glad you mentioned things like masking. I want to know if the practical advice after all of this confusion is still basically the same so far as you see it. Uh, See people outdoors rather than indoors, six feet apart, wear a mask, that sort of thing. Correct. The guidance doesn't change. So there's lots of nice 
sophisticated aerobiology studies now that look at what happens when you sneeze and cough and how far these particles go and whether there's virus riding along in them. But we know that if we wear our masks and we couple that with the public health strategy of testing, isolating and tracing people, that we can get this disease under control. And actually, many countries have done so and some have even eliminated it, like, you know, Taiwan and New Zealand and China. Dr. Ali Khan, University of Nebraska, thanks. Thank you. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey announced Tuesday he signed a proclamation to recognize October 12, 2020 as Indigenous Peoples Day on the federal Columbus holiday. Emma Gibson with Arizona Public Media has more. The proclamation came after Arizona State Senator James Sita Peshlakai and a youth-led advocacy group, Indigenous Peoples Initiative, called for the change. Dylan Baca, the group's president, who is White Mountain Apache and Navajo, says Indigenous Peoples Day acknowledges a more accurate account of Christopher Columbus's violent legacy. This holiday is significant for me because it works to try to eliminate the stereotypes and stigmatisms associated with Indigenous peoples and tribes. Peshlakai called on Governor Ducey in June during President Donald Trump's visit to Phoenix to establish the state holiday using his executive powers. She now says she will introduce a bill to permanently change the holiday in the 2021 legislative session. For National Native News, I'm Emma Gibson. The Navajo Nation is returning to 57-hour weekend lockdowns and stay-at-home orders due to a rise in positive COVID-19 cases on and near the reservation. Tuesday's announcement comes a day after top U.S. infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci praised the tribe for lowering numbers, crediting the tribe's strict COVID-19 measures, which were enforced for months. Some of the orders, including the 57-hour curfew, were eased. But during a virtual town hall Tuesday, Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez had a stern message for residents to stay vigilant. Nez says a cluster of 40 or more positive cases trace back to travel and spreading the virus during social gatherings, which are currently restricted on Navajo land. And so we're going to have to slow everything down. We're going to have to put stay-at-home orders because we don't know how far this has gone out in contact with other people. The new cases were reported in Arizona and New Mexico. The tribe's also asking residents to avoid areas in Utah considered hotspots for the virus. Native vote advocates encouraged young people to engage in the voting process on National Voter Registration Day. Barb Hartzell works with the Las Vegas Indian Center on the Native Vote. She talked about investing in Native youth by using traditional teachings and connecting them with issues Native youth face today. Really taking like our traditional routes and how we carry ourselves and what is important to us and being able to invest that in our youth and meeting them where they're at and letting them really understand that it seems so big and so massive or maybe it doesn't seem important at all. It really does determine a lot of things and like it really determines just how far we've come from just our grandmothers and mothers' generations to where we'll go with their next generations. 
Hartzell took part in a National Congress of American Indians virtual gathering Tuesday, along with tribal leaders and Native women in office. The organization's nonpartisan vote campaign focuses on education, registration, getting out the Native vote, election protection, and data collection. According to NCAI, an estimated 1.2 million American Indian and Alaska Native people are unregistered. Five Indian country bills were passed by Congress Tuesday and sent to the president to be signed into law. The bills address missing and murdered indigenous women, self governance, business, and economic development, and legislation to nullify a supplemental treaty for tribes on the Warm Springs Reservation. There are seven other bills currently pending in the House, which range from education to water rights and veterans' issues. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. You're listening to Community Supported Radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and this is the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. KVMR's news program airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Coming up at 6.30 this evening, we have this week's edition of The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast, we have George Rabain with a commentary. The most recent COVID news is that the CDC, quote, pulled new guidelines acknowledging the new coronavirus could be transmitted by tiny particles that linger in the air, saying a draft version of proposed changes was posted in error on the agency's website, unquote. Apparently, there are still some unknowns, and the debate continues about how the virus spreads through the air. The point here is that the science isn't settled, and moreover, science is rarely settled, and then only in the minds of people who know next to nothing about science. We have survived for eons and continue to do so in pathogen-rich environments, where all kinds of bugs are always floating around, which in sufficient concentrations could kill us. Our immune system has knocked out the overwhelming share of these and allowed us to lead ever longer lives. But not all immune systems are created equal, and from time to time we do dumb things to weaken them. And then there's the science that attempts to discover the known unknowns about things like, say, the toxicity of COVID aerosols. In what size volumes, at what levels of concentrations, and for how long will the aerosol-transmitted COVID virus infect a healthy person in this or that age range with a given likelihood or probability? I hope you're getting the picture here about all the unknowns and uncertainties involved that must be recognized in the making of a coherent, let alone reasonable, pandemic response policy. Science does not speak with a single comprehensible and clear voice saying, do this and then you'll be okay. Science speaks in many tongues and it's up to us humans to sort things out, select what we think is important and likely, and then put that into a complex mix with all kinds of other impacting factors to come up with a decision or plan with which to go forward. Only NAFES, media charlatans, and politicians attempt to dumb down this process into something simple and certain. To dwell a bit on this very important aspect of understanding science, the well-read person knows that science seldom settles anything. The power of the scientific method is that it is the most reliable way with which we can discover real-world relationships between stuff we can measure. 
Science tells us that so much of this causes so much of that, or more precisely, this rarely, sometimes, always causes that, and attempts to put a number on it. And with more science, these relationships often change. And then there's the reality that not all scientists know all these relationships at any given time. Finally, science does not and cannot put a value on its outcomes that prescribe do this and not that from a list of alternative actions. Such prescriptions result only from various groups of humans putting different values on certain expected outcomes. Today, we again see an example of this in where the CDC has formed an advisory panel to determine how to roll out the various COVID vaccines that will shortly become available in increasing quantities. Each of these vaccines will have certain prophylactic properties, immunity levels and durations for various demographic categories, all of which will be known only to within certain probability ranges. It is the panel which must evaluate risks, pick performance thresholds, target populations, and distribution policies, all based on their adopted consensus of subjective values. In such policy-making realms, science is silent. With this in mind, we all should pay attention as this kind of policy-making goes on behind the scenes, and as we will continue to be assured by politicians of various hues that they will only follow the science and not be swayed by politics. I hope that with some reflection, dear listener, that you will now understand that such demagoguery is pure nonsense. Politics will drive all such decisions and response policies which are then painted with the best code of science before they are trotted out for public consumption. My name is Rebane, and I also expand on this and related themes on Rebane's Ruminations, where the transcript of this commentary is posted with relevant links and where such issues are debated extensively. However, my views are not necessarily shared by KVMR. Thank you for listening. That's our newscast for this evening. Next up, we have The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Good.